Hey. Hello. How you doing, Jerusalem? I'm doing great. <laughs> How are so you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Good to hear that. Welcome to the Labcast. Yes. A podcast brought to you by the Production Lab. Right on. And I am Jerusalem, one of your co-hosts. Uh, I'm Ro. I work at the Production Lab, and I'm your other co-host. The Labcast is a podcast bringing you all things new at NYU. Yes. And this week we're talking to you about the live event. Oh my gosh. That we had two weeks ago. I think I still have chills. It was a great event. It was a smashing success, if I do say so myself. Absolutely. Basically, we had professional podcasters come in and give this academy. Wait, let's back up because remember our first episode? Do you remember where we recorded our first episode? I do. We recorded it in... Started from the bottom, now we're here. We were in... The production lab. In a conference room with a Zoom. Yeah, and a built mic stand between (laughs) the two of us. A Zoom and a boom. A Zoom and a boom. And now we're here with (laughs) professionals in... Bringing actual podcasting pros into NYU to the production lab for our first event podcast academy so the next two episodes are actually going to be talking about this live event but before we get into all of that we got to talk about what's popping yes what's popping for you i saw a star was born a star is born that's that's what's popping for me oh okay so let's just talk about it okay i mean yeah it was good stephanie sang yes i said okay this i gave it a six out of ten okay and her singing was two of the Talk to me about why you knocked points off. I bet we knocked points off for similar reasons. Um, The pacing felt very off. Uh The pacing was very quick. I I didn't get a chance. Very quick. He flew her out on a jet to his concert within 48 hours of meeting her. She punched someone in the face (laughs) in his honor within 40 minutes of meeting him. A lot lot happens in the the very beginning, but I I felt it was really long. So when you said... It was very long for not a lot to happen. Well, it was very quick in the beginning, then it, like... Right. Yeah, and then it sputtered out. Right. And then by the end of the film, it was like a lot just happened for us to get here. all I needed was Gaga. Yeah. The last... the. Ooh, the last song was a Whitney song. Whitney. Thank you. He, I said it the was, bodyguard? Yes. Yes. <laughs> I feel like, we, yes, we had the same moment. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I was listening to it. I said, okay, wait, I, I see I what see y'all you. did there. I see, I see what you did Yeah. Mm-hmm. I said, okay, girl, you, you sprinkled that in and Gaga <laughs> delivered. I, I keep calling her Gaga, but now in my mind, she's Stephanie. Because I'm like, I, whew, I can't go back to how I viewed her. I said, vocal. She's a vocalist. Amazing. I'll just say that I'm obsessed with her. And mm-hmm. what I like loved about that movie was just seeing her creative process, making that album, mm. and like watching her sort of deal with all the doubts around how people were going to respond to just the vocals. Yeah. Like a stripped down yeah. Stephanie. Stephanie can sing. I said, <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Without the... Without the meat and without... She's given us hits. I've never been an anti-Lady Gaga. I've just always been kind of, oh, she's cool. I think what's so unique, what makes Stephanie a star, what, what makes Stephanie Lady Gaga is the fact that she is so brilliant live. Yeah. And you know who else is good live? Is it us? I think it might be. <laughs> we had our first live event. It went really, really well. So... You want to talk about it? You want me to talk about it? Yeah. I'll talk about it. I can definitely talk about it. Talk about it. So we had our first live event, and it was, first of all, a very huge turnout. So thank you to everyone. 
people came showed up. To people have never stepped foot in the production lab. Came to the production up. lab. Yes, absolutely. It was a full house, which was very it was yeah. very reaffirming. We brought out the Prince couch. We did bring out the Prince couch, this long crushed purple, velvet, beautiful crushed velvet couch, and only top of the line uh, couches for <laughs> lab cast. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. So it was very we, nice. We it was very nice. We had a very good turnout with plenty of people coming as well as RSVPing, and we also had these four very cool professional panelists and talking should, to us about podcasting. I feel like we should give a shout out to the student panelists. We too. definitely should. Zach and Ryan, we see you. Yeah, they have their own podcast. Kelly Drake, we see you. WNYU. Yeah, doing all the things over there. Jerusalem. I see you. I also was a student panelist, so thank y'all. Yeah, you for guys set the tone. Me. We did, and then we were able to then sit back and listen to these professionals talk about podcasting in ways that we could only imagine to that point. I know so. that's right. I learned some things. Yeah, I did as well. So let's, I mean, let's jump right into it. We're going to bring you guys, the listeners, the best of the evening. We had amazing guests, Carrie Ann Thomas from Gimlet. Ike Shrish Kandaraja from The Daily. We had Michael Garofalo, formerly of StoryCorps. And we had Megan Tan, formerly of Millennial. So we're going to, over the course of the next couple of episodes, bring you the best of the night. So the first panelist that we had or we featured was Carrie Ann Thomas. Um, she is with Gimlet, and she talked a lot about the creative process. And it was really interesting hearing her speak because she didn't just speak about the light bulb moment where you come up with the idea and it's super perfect and it's great. The fun part. She, the fun part. She talked about the not-so-fun parts, such where she called it the dark forest. And the dark forest is this really hard place to get out of just because it's a rut you think your artwork is terrible you think you're terrible you think it's not really that good of an idea and you become really dissatisfied with what you originally wanted to create and Carrie Ann really gave us some tips and tricks on how to get out of that dark forest and how to really shorten your journey through it when making something creative cool thank you um, so as Katie said, my name is Carrie Ann. Uh, for the past uh, year, I've been with Gimlet Creative. Uh, we make branded podcasts for all sorts of brands. The most recent one I've worked on, I've worked on a podcast with Lyft. It's called Pick Me Up, um, which is still publishing. So you know, if you feel inclined, please uh, tune in. Um, it's so cool to be here and see so many of you here. I feel like on a Wednesday night in college, I was like eating burritos in bed, like scramming for the paper I had to do tomorrow. So like kudos to you guys. It's great to see you and I'm glad everybody is interested in podcasting. Um, so when Katie told me that we we're gonna focus on, on process tonight, um, I actually wanted to focus on this one particular part of the process that I've been kind of asking myself a lot about and kind of challenging myself to kind of ask, how can I be better at this particular part of the process? And I'm going to talk about the creative process just like Jessica Abel does. Jessica Abel's wrote this book called On the Wire. It's basically like the how-to do radio guide, it, guidebook. It's, it's amazing. I highly recommend if you haven't. But she kind of sets up the creative process in six steps. So I'm going to quickly walk through these. Um, so when you first start out an episode or you first start out a story, you kind of go through this, these uh, six steps. The first is like, this is going to be the best story ever. I'm so excited. I feel really good about it. I feel like I know exactly where the story is going. You start doing inter uh, interviews. Your subjects are awesome. Um, and you feel really hopeful. 
you're excited to start writing. And then you kind of enter stage two where you start writing and you're like, ooh, this is like a little, a little harder than I thought it would be. And gradually you kind of make your way to this stage three where you're like, oh my God, this is like way harder than I thought. Why did I set myself up for disaster? This story is not great. Nobody's gonna like it. And then you get into stage four where you're like, oh, I'm like the worst reporter ever. This is not a that problem, this is a me problem. Uh, and then luckily you get to this stage five where with the help of editors and uh, co-producers in your team, where you realize like, okay, hey, this is like not as bad as I thought. And then you get to this like hallelujah six where you hear the final production and you're like, oh, okay, no, this is, this is good, this is great. Um, so what I wanna focus on is three and four, really starting this night with the positives, guys. Um, I wanna focus on this is terrible and I'm terrible. And Jessica Abel refers to this as like the part of the process where you're, you're in the dark forest. You're like in this really scary part of the process where you feel really alone and lost and you cannot find your way out of the story. And I feel like every episode I've ever done, like I've had some sort of different variation of being in the dark, the dark forest. Um, and you can actually like tell when I'm either entering or in the dark forest. Uh, like I start working really late, I start losing sleep, uh, Seamless and Lyft receipts start piling in my bank account. Um, I start making Spotify playlists like this. <laughs> just like a ton of Smith songs. I don't even like the Smiths that much. Uh, robots are just gonna take over anyway. And then if I do have any spare time, I'm watching Real Housewives of New York. Um, <laughs> Uh, but the reason why I really wanted to talk about this today was because I, this summer I was working on uh, this project called Pick Me Up, uh, and it was about, we, we uh, profiled a Lyft driver for each episode that we did. And the projects, the two episodes that I did, I really, I really believed in the story, and I really loved the people that we were profiling, and I got so invested in these stories. And I got so sucked into the dark forest, more sucked in than I had ever been sucked in before. And it was a really scary and lonely process. Um, I stopped training for a half marathon that I was training for. Um, I kind of like stopped seeing friends. Uh, I just like totally got, I got lost in the dark forest. Um, and now that I'm like kind of at the stage in the process, I'm like at stage six where like, the two episodes that I created, um, they're out in the world and I feel good about it and with the help of editors and my uh, co-producers on the project, they like helped me get to that point. But now that I'm kind of out of that point and I'm at stage six, I'm kind of just like asking myself, like how the heck do I do this part of the process better? I have to make a new episode in two weeks and I do not want to enter that dark forest in the way that I did again. Um, so I kind of started asking myself, like, what are some ways that I can do this uh, when I, uh, the ways, like, I embrace the fact that I'm going to go through this uh, dark forest, but how can I do it um, better? And also I'm like, am I the only one who goes through the dark forest every single time? <laughs> so I, I walked around Gimlet today and asked uh, a few of my, my fellow coworkers <laughs> if, if they felt what I felt and uh, how they dealt with it. Do you ever feel like when you're working on an episode and you're kind of in the middle of it all, like you're in the thick of it, do you ever feel like you're kind of in this lonely and scary and hard to find your way out dark forest? Yeah, I mean, I think it happens on varying levels of depending on the project. 
How often does that happen to you? Every time I write a story. It's like when you like fall in those Wikipedia, like the, the black hole in Wikipedia where you like, maybe you started off with gelatin molds and then you somehow ended up in like zookeeping. The most extreme example that I remember, it was a project that I cared about so much. And I remember like meeting my editor at some point, like over a beer. And I was just like, I don't know what this is about anymore. And like, it's about all these things and they're really, really complicated. And I like, I had this whole theory that was like so complicated. And I remember my editor was just like, you've got to make this simpler. <laughs> One of my first like editing jobs, I had to like create a video. And I remember like, I had like 30 minutes left and like absolutely like considered like just like walking out. It was really hard. And I found that like when I'm in the weeds on projects like that, like it's not healthy. Like it's bad for my relationship. It's like bad for my, like I don't exercise. Like it, it, it's it, because it's like, it's such a big thing and you care about it so much that you like let everything else go. You're like, yeah, no, I'm just gonna like work every like waking hour that I have. But like ultimately you, when you work on a team, like it's about asking for help when you can't. Also like you have to just take care of yourself and like not let it take over your life. Outlining helps me a lot because if you have that outline or that timeline or that schedule that's like yours, I think it helps you to remind yourself like where you're at in your process. And if you have a really straight outline where you like know exactly how you're going into it, like you're going into it with control. Like do whatever, like one thing, like go to the gym, like I go to the gym or I meditate. So I feel like whatever your thing is, even if it's like really small, um, like making tea, like that like grounds you and not like, so you're not like obsessed with the thing. Yeah, you're not like on the never ending treadmill. Yeah, I think that's <laughs> the thing. Like you have to have times when you're not on a never ending treadmill. Taking like, you know, like a walk or like getting that fresh air, talking things out to people. I like doing that. Like reminding myself why I, I find the story interesting. Like what about it it is. So like I'll try, try to find someone new and tell them the story and I'm like, oh, okay, that's what it was. Like, that's why I like that story. So I found this incredibly helpful just to talk to my coworkers about it. Cause I have to say uh, the last few months working on this, I felt really lonely and felt like I was kind of like the only person that was, was struggling this hard. Um, but I think like looking back and, and talking with people and, and kind of like learning from my past dark forest experience, um, some of the things that I learned um, that hopefully you guys can take and, and uh, bring into your own dark forests um, is accept that this happens to everyone. Uh, when you're working on a project that you really truly care about, it's going to be hard. Um, but you know, take take these take these steps, and and hopefully it will it will make it better. Um, talk about the dark forest with other people. Um, it will make you feel a lot less lonely and a lot less like you're not good enough. Um, take care of yourself. Go on walks. See your friends. Um, have a cup of tea. Take a bubble bath. Talk to your mom. Um, talk to friends and talk to parents and strangers about the project that you're working on because uh, I find like when you talk to people about what you're doing, you'll kind of like remind yourself uh, what the best part of your project is and it will kind of like remind you why you're working in on the first place. Uh, trust your editors and trust your teammates because they are the people that are going to get you to that like stage five and stage six where you get out of the dark forest. And lastly is, is embrace the forest. Know that every time that you work on a story you could potentially find your way through the dark forest. Um, know that it's going to be hard, but at the end of the day, it's, uh, it's going to make you a better producer and a better storyteller and artist. So that's it. Cool. What I loved about 
what Carrie shared because she's such a pro, you know what I mean, was I could see for the first time the similarities between audio producing and writing hmm. because she was talking like a writer. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like when I talk to my creative friends about story, those are the kinds of conversations or like creative struggles. Those are the kinds of conversations that we have. So it was interesting to see those parallels. Now we're going to bring you a bit from Ike Shreese Kandaraja at The Daily, which is dealing with the other work that goes into a story. And that's yeah. the structuring of the story itself. Like, how are you going to put this story together in a way that's really compelling and interesting? Yeah. I really enjoyed Ike's story. I really enjoyed Ike's presentation. Um, I'm a big fan of The Daily. And so I think um, what he shares is amazing. I do want to give you a heads up. There is some violent content, so just be warned. So I was thinking about which clip to play you, and I was thinking it's been, I would play you one of the first stories that I worked on when I started at The Daily, and it's about a year old. Uh, the show starts like this. From the New York Times, I'm Michael Barbaro. This is The Daily. Today, every mass shooting in the U.S. is inevitably followed by a call for gun control. But it never happens. The story behind why the legislation always fails and the NRA always wins. And a gun shop owner talks about putting military-style weapons into the hands of civilians. It's Wednesday, October 4th. So this was a couple of days after the Las Vegas shooting, and we'd been doing daily coverage of like quick response, what happened, and then the next day kind of expanding out that, what we know the day after. Um, by the third day, we were still trying to figure out, there were a lot of, the Times had deployed reporters all over, and we're trying to figure out, it was a, a real mystery, and they weren't finding out exactly this guy's motive. There wasn't a satisfying story. So we at The Daily were trying to figure out how do we, like people still want to hear about this story. People are still curious. They don't want to hear anything else. Uh, how should we come at it? And I wanted to talk to you a little bit, and this will overlap with Michael's talk a little bit, but hopefully um, there'll be some different takeaways. I don't know. It's up to you guys. But how to find a story. and. We were talking about how to follow up on this story, and we wanted to know something that is adjacent. So you hear it on the second part. This is a two-part episode. And one, what is the, what always happens in the wake of a mass shooting? It's almost a formula that the NRA comes out, makes a statement, and gun sales go way up the next day. It's it's almost like clockwork. So we wanted to explain that strategy and that outcome and how it came to be and how the NRA came to be in that position that they are today. And we also were feeling like we really were craving a voice, a human voice of somebody who's not a, not a New York Times reporter, but somebody who has had a lived experience that's kind of adjacent to this catastrophe that we were all reeling from. Hello, and I know why you're calling. 
Hey, is this John? Yeah. Hey, it's Michael Barbaro from the New York Times. Okay, bye. John, can you tell me about your store? Maybe just describe it to me. You're talking about the gun shop? Yeah. Uh, we already had a number of shops in the area, so I decided I didn't want to sell the same thing they did, which was all hunting equipment. And so I started out by selling tactical equipment, like uh, AR-15s or long-range rifles. I mean, I sold rifles that could shoot a mile. I sold $10,000 rifles. I sold $5,000 guns. I sold the upper end. John Merkel owns a gun store in Roanoke, Virginia, that sells military-style weapons. Oh, they're sexy. Hmm. I mean, they're like a beautiful woman. After the shooting, there was all this reporting about how this could have happened, what was the type of equipment that this shooter, if you remember, uh, in Las Vegas, he was using some device called a, a bump stock. Uh, later in the week, we tried to buy, like I tried to source out where I could find one of these bump stocks they, because, uh, as I said earlier, every time one of these shootings happens, people who are interested in guns think that guns are going to disappear and they go and buy up everything they can. So bump stocks were sold out. We wanted to hear from somebody who's on the other side of that counter and what it's like and how they're grappling. And that's something we're always thinking about, is somebody who can speak to a news event and actually grapple with the ethical implications of what's happening. Uh, if they just stay on their, you know, if a, a politician, uh, an advocacy person might just stay on the line uh, that they, you know, they'll stay on their platform. But if you want to hopefully learn from something, you want to hear somebody wrestling with the ethical conundrum of what they are involved in. And we were thinking who might, who would be the per perfect person you'd want to hear from a couple of days after the mass shooting. And it would be somebody on that side of the counter is what we decided. And we had these kind of open-ended editorial meetings. And everybody's just kicking around ideas. And I think that would be one lesson for how to find a story is talking it through with your friends, talking it through with you know, my colleagues in this case, and seeing when somebody leans forward, some, seeing when somebody's eyes glaze over, just reading the body expressions of the person you were telling the story to. And this is a moment where we felt like everybody was leaning in, and we're like, we'd like to hear from somebody. So that comes, the next step is sourcing. And I was thinking, who exactly? It could be just any gun store owner. It could be anybody. But we'd like to hear from somebody who sells these high-end, high-caliber rifles. And I sourced out a list of the biggest mass shootings, the, most, the deadliest mass shootings in United States history. And I made a spreadsheet. And that's not the sexy part of podcasting, but it's a really important one, and it's a helpful tool. I wrote, I made a list of all of the biggest and deadliest mass shootings, and I sourced out exactly where, um, based on news clips from the time, where those guns had been bought. And then from there, I looked and found all of the owners of those gun stores, just using basic 
white pages stuff. And then called and got 17 no's in a row. Uh, because why would anybody want to talk about it? And then, like, off the record, uh, I'll tell you, but no. Nobody would go on the record until I found this guy. I do want to ask you about 2007. Can you tell me about the gun that you sold on, on March 13th? The, the Glock 19. Yeah, to Sung Lee Cho. I talked to the clerk, and the clerk said that he was very quiet, uh, hardly, well, the way he described it was a typical college kid who finally was old enough to buy a gun. He was 21, so he could buy a gun. When did you first hear about the, the shooting, the Virginia Tech shooting? Well, it happened on a Monday. Well, you got to understand, I was listening for the whole, from the whole thing, the news from the very beginning. One person was killed in the dorm, then there's two. Then a long, long gap, or seemed like it was a long gap, and then we hear there's 10, there's 15. It just kept going up and up, and I kept thinking, my God, it's got to stop. Hmm. And I had to deal with the ATF immediately, Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. We didn't know it was us until ATF told us it was. And the okay. only reason they knew is because he kept the receipt in his backpack. Hmm. They brought that receipt directly to us. Of course, it looks exactly like all of our receipts. Uh, he bought the gun and one box of practice ammo. Hmm. And I, I, I mean, they were breaking my heart. My daughter graduated from Tech in 1997. Wow. I mean, I, I can't believe it. And I think that's what the show does, hopefully, somewhat successfully, is take a news event and unravel it. Uh, I also want to, just in terms of process, talk a little bit about structure. So a classic newspaper story is an inverted pyramid. Have you guys heard that? It's like you start with the, the news and then you kind of expand. And the difference about the daily from the, you know, the audio version of the Times is it flips that and it starts broad and then narrows in. So we didn't start with, like, this is a guy from the, you know, this is, you're going to hear from the guy who sold the gun to the Virginia Tech shooter. It starts with this, he's kind of just describing his gun store, and then as you're, as he's telling a story and you hear it, the passion he has for guns, why he falls and why he fell in love with them, and then it's kind of a sucker punch surprise that he is the guy that sold the gun to. So I think to review, specialized, and really whenever you're looking for a story, curiosity and Spreadsheets are your best friend. Yeah, so Ike's particular presentation was very powerful, um, even covering the topics that it did. But I especially liked where he talked very specifically to finding your niche. Mm. I think when it comes to storytelling, everyone finds their story so valuable. But when you think about putting it out there, you may be deterred because you think, oh, someone probably has already said that. Someone probably doesn't want to hear this, but in finding your niche, like he found his in science, um, podcasting and writing, you're able to create a lane for yourself and then from there find out what you want. So that was really cool and inspiring to hear. 
I really liked how he talked about um, he talked about the sort of reverse pyramid, the upside yep. down pyramid. Where mm-hmm. You sort of start broad and then like really drill into one person's perspective and yep. one person kind of grappling with an issue, yep. um, which I think is what makes the daily so compelling. So that was cool. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to see that technique in action on another subject, Ike has a really cool audio story in the Times right now. It's called The Miseducation of Lauren Hill's Kids 20 Years Later. So it's the 20-year anniversary of her album dropping. And so he went and found these kids who are on the, featured on the album in these sort of interstitial sections. And so you get to hear what they're up to, how they got involved. It's really interesting. I did not know that was a thing. That's a thing. <laughs> no you should go look it. at it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and I think Ike's approach to the inverted pyramid um, also helps when talking about getting through that dark forest that Carrie Ann brought up, right? Nice. Because if you have an idea of how your story is going to be structured, it's a little easier to say, okay, I have formatted it in a way that I know is going to be successful. Now I just have to get out of my own head. Yeah, And that's a very powerful but also productive way to think about telling your story and making a podcast right on so big thank you to both carrie ann and ike for coming down we're not done we're not done the slightest we have two more panelists that's right that presented as well as that we're going to cover but if you want to hear that you have to tune in for our part two all right so thanks for listening don't forget to subscribe on itunes and we'll be right back at you with more episodes from podcast academy Thanks for listening to LabCast, brought to you by the Production Lab. Executive producer, Katie Shepard. Associate producer, Anna Van Dyne. Music by Abby T. Big thank you to Carrie Ann, Ike, Ryan, Zach, Kelly, and everyone who made Podcast Academy happen. Shout out to John Tintori.